sometimes those stories get all mixed up. What's the sequence? How's it, how they all connect? Famous stories like David and Goliath, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the stories are all there, and they're all really important, but um, they can function like little pearls, beautiful little pearls of wisdom and beautiful, beautiful in themselves, but there needs to be a necklace, a string that strings all those beautiful pearls together, and Christ is the string. And so we, we can't be uh, too uh, concerned about finding Christ in all the scriptures. And so with that in mind, uh, let's go before our God and let's pray for, this, for these next few moments. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are um, the one who has set apart this time and you come to us in word proclamation. You are the one who is with us in your promise to be uh, our King and Lord. And so, Father, I pray, I pray for myself that you would help me communicate that which is the most important to say in these moments. And Father, help us to hear directly from your uh, throne today. And we thank you that you have helped us today by giving us the elements of the Lord's Supper, that we can hold in our hands the very things that we have heard. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As a child growing up, I would stare at cereal boxes while I'm eating my cereal. Do you guys remember those days? Some of you still, some of you still looking for the toy inside the box? I used to stare at the cereal box, and uh, Kellogg's Corn Flakes, the, the rooster, um, stare at that rooster. And it would get my mind moving and going about visiting one of my uncles who uh, was in Northern California. I actually had an uncle named Elwood. How about that? Elwood. And his, uh, my aunt, his wife, Ruby. So Elwood and Ruby. And they had a farm. And whenever I saw the rooster on the Kellogg's cornflakes cover, I thought of their of their farm. And for me, um, when I think about if I could travel any place, a lot of exotic places come to mind. But do you know what are the most peaceful images in my mind? A place where I'd like to just hang out for a week or so would be a farm. You say some of you grew up in a farm. Man, farms are smelly and. Uh, Farms mean a lot of work, and farms are not, well, if you have a romantic idea about a farm, you should just go work on one for a while. Well, that's my idea, and that is that the barn, the rooster crowing in the the sun, that golden sun coming up, and the corn growing, and the vegetables growing, and that happy farmer driving that John Deere tractor, and I just think of good things, wholesome things, when I think about a farm. I think of order, sun, uh, sunrise to sunset, sunrise to sunset. I think of order. I think of plants growing. I think of harvests. I think of good things. When God sets out to redeem the world, he's after the restoration of order. And if we're not convinced of that, we have only to look at how he sustains this world 
sunrise, the sunset, how he has promised to restore the world. And in the book of Genesis, it's hard to keep that in mind. Uh, We just read uh, a number of verses that we're not going to cover, a lot of details there, but we're just going to cover a few verses. In fact, if you want to just circle where we're going, you can circle verse 8, 9, and 10. Because this is where God is now promising to bring order back to mankind. Genesis has some really rough stories. If you've ever read the book of Genesis, it's, it's tough going. It is grisly stuff. And uh, this is a point where Jacob is about to die, and he is now gathering his 12 sons. And he, this takes place, by the way, in Egypt, and they got there because of Joseph and his faithfulness in Egypt, and he is now a ruler in Egypt. And Jacob is now giving these men a recounting of their lives, some of the things that they have done. And he's predicting, uh, in, a, in a way, not quite like a prophet, but he's telling the future. He's blessing his sons, and he is telling them that God is going to be with them. But their behavior has had significant consequence for their future. And surprise, surprise, the firstborn, Reuben, is not going to be the preeminent one, but actually it's going to be number four, Judah, who is going to be the one who inherits a very special status among the tribes. So it's a summary of, of the actions of these men, their characteristics, and it's, it's poetic too. And so we're going to explore some of the poetry here. The original audience that Moses is writing to would have been the crowd going into the land of Canaan, the, the Exodus crowd, the, actually the second generation going into Canaan. Now they are anxious about how this is all going to work out, and they're starting to really believe and trust Moses for his words. The first generation had a struggle with Moses. And, and now they're hearing about the, the history of their tribes, and they're hearing an explanation why one tribe is going to be right near the entrance of the tabernacle, Judah. It's going to, be the per, it's going to have a prominence among God, God's people. And for us in our day, well, we're going to have to explore what, what, how does this impact me. But Moses wants his original audience to know that the future is still in God's hands and the future is unfolding and has a few twists and turns in it. And who would have thought that Judah, with his sins, and all of them are sinners, all these sons and all these tribes, but God in his sovereignty chooses Judah. Joseph, of course, you know that there's a lot of ink about Joseph. In fact, there's something like 12 chapters or 13 chapters committed to, to Joseph. And uh, I have a lot of questions about Adam, don't you? There's only about a what? A, 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 I don't know what, 20 verses about Adam maybe or 30 verses? I want more information about Adam. That's my concern. Well, Moses isn't writing to me. He's writing to his, his people and they're concerned 
uh, about their legacy and their history. And Moses is concerned about behavior in the land. Behavior has consequences. And Moses is holding forth Joseph as the paradigm of what it's like to be faithful in a foreign country, in a land you're not used to. Joseph is the one who does really, really well when he is tempted. He doesn't transgress boundaries. He does really, really well. So he's held up as a paradigm, and the original audience is listening to this, and they're buying into this, and they're hearing Jacob recount why these tribes are the way uh, they are. So the future is bright, the future is good, and it's going to come through through Judah. So really what you have is a mini, just by way of an outline, you have a mini summary of Genesis, at least half of Genesis, by covering all these sons. You have a mini summary of Genesis. And then secondly, you have an image that comes up in Judah, and it's an image of needed strength, an image of needed strength. And then thirdly, you have a ruler that is coming who has the world in mind, a ruler who is coming with the world in mind. Well, just take, just by way of the context, let's get a flow here a little bit, and let's explore, stay with me a bit here, because this may feel like a little distant, and kind of what is this all about? Reuben is spoken to, uh, and in verse... um, Verse 3, take a look at this. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. So Reuben has, has that special privilege. He's the firstborn. He's preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. A lot of responsibilities to be the firstborn uh, back then. A lot of privileges. But then in verse 4, it says this about Reuben. Unstable, and here's the poetry, as water unstable as water, and you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Now this is all like, what is this? And commentators are struggling with what is the intent here? What's happening? This is nuanced. We may miss something in the translation here, but Reuben, you're unstable as water. And the idea here is that you're unstable. It could almost be translated frothy. You're like a bubbling brook. You're, you're moving all over the place. You're like a Colorado River Rapids. You have passion, and you act on your passion. Sometimes your passion goes this way, and it goes that way. You cannot be the preeminent one of Israel. Israel cannot be led by this, a passion, an ungoverned impulse So we've entered into poetry. 60% of your Bible is poetry, by the way. And now, as you have a simile here, like or as, and sometimes you have a metaphor, which is a direct comparison. So we have metaphors and similes going on here. And the idea is, for those of you who are poetically inclined and you love this stuff, you're given freedom to, as long as you stay within the confines of what it means to be water, You can't just suddenly start start talking about rocks. (laughs) But if you stay within the confines of what it means to be water, moving water, you you have freedom now to enter into how God wants you to understand Reuben. 
And so this, this makes our Bible exciting. This makes our Bible very interesting and intriguing because it opens up to us now the possibility of having a mental understanding, a mental experience. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me like a shepherd. Well, that's, that's, a, that's poet, poet, poetry, right? So we are now entering into Jacob's use of poetic form in order to teach a truth about his sons. And essentially it's setting up uh, a critique or a censure of all the tribes. Toward the end of verse 4, you have this mention of you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, and then they trans. Then uh, going into the, the third person, he went up to my couch. Do you see that there in verse 4? He went up to my couch. Now, the best, uh, best commentators on this are saying what Jacob is doing here is he's referring to all the tribes, and all of the tribes have in some way, or these sons, have transgressed the proper boundaries of God's moral law. And so this is a censure. It is a, it is a, a you, you didn't keep my laws. You didn't keep my name. You haven't honored my, my revealed will. God has declared certain things to be holy and to be kept that way. And Jacob's sons are transgressors of proper boundaries. And there are a number of sexual sins committed by these sons. There's also uh, sins of retribution. They, they want a, an ordered world. They're not thinking of nice farms and roosters crowing. <laughs> or if they are thinking of that, they're going to bring it about through the sword. They're going to bring about order in a way they perceive it, in the way they want it, and the way they want it is now. And the proper boundaries um, of a man and woman are transgressed by these, by these men. So, Simeon and Levi, these men are described in uh, Genesis 34, they're described as plotting revenge of a sexual assault against one who was their sister, Dinah. And the, there's a lot of ink uh, expressed as to how they very cleverly and wickedly determine how to avenge what happened to their sister. They are men of violent retribution. So the book of Genesis, is this, this is, a, this is a, a deeply troubled family, Jacob's, Jacob's sons. And of course, now we're going to see, though, that even these graphic stories really don't, it doesn't seem as if anyone, it doesn't get anyone's attention because we see how, how the children of Israel enter the land of Canaan. And the book of Judges tells us that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, that was already modeled by these sons. It's interesting, isn't it? As the Bible unfolds, we keep looking for a hero. Wait, 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 wait. No, we keep watching for a hero. And really, few of them show up. We think of Joseph. We think of Daniel. 
to David, but each of them have their own struggles. Each of them are sinners. In fact, the whole Old Testament concludes that no one really is faithful. No one really stays within the boundaries, loves God's law, cares for God's holiness. Not a single person in the Old Testament. These tribes are full of passion. Passion. Now, one, one, one final thought on just this little mini overview, and this we're just trying to set up um, verses 9 and 10. Eugene Peterson is an author, and he said this. He said it, uh, about stories, about stories. He says this, stories uh, bring us into the action as recipients and participants without dumping the responsibility on us for making it turn out right. We're watching these stories, and we're, we are as caught up in them as anyone because we see that we, we are not responsible enough to be consistent and faithful to God's promises. Who's going to take, take God seriously? Who is going to bring about the order, the order that we long for, the order we can see in a cereal box cover, who, who, who is going to take that? We are just watching. We're watching who is going to come through. The unfolding mystery is he's coming. The one who will do it and take full responsibility for the mess that we are in, he's coming. He's coming. And as you unfold your Bible, and this is an unusual text to preach on, Genesis 49 a little, you may not have heard sermons on this, but Christ is here. Christ is the final Judah, in the best sense of the word, uh, who will come. He will, be, um, he will be the ruler that the world needs for order. Okay? Now, the next image is an image of strength. Look at verse 9, speaking of Judah. Judah, verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. The, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Wow, quite a, quite a powerful <laughs> uh, uh, image there. Your, your father's son shall bow before you. Okay, so we have Judah. You're going to, you are going to be a, you're going to be, a, you're going to rule and you're going to push back the enemies of God. And, and then verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. So it's sort of like a, like a proud lion rising up after it's eaten. And he stooped down, and he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Here's the poetry. We're not talking about water now. Now we're talking about a lion. And the image is an image of needed strength. Lions. I've been reflecting on what what is it about a lion that is uh, so, so powerful uh, crocodiles are fierce, aren't they? Crazy fierce. Um, elephants can be very, very fierce and dangerous. Hippos, apparently a lot of people die in Africa because of hippos, uh, right? Well, what is it about a lion? And, you, and we're given the freedom here to work with this metaphor. And uh, the picture is, uh, don't rouse a lion. He's sleeping. It's all tiptoe here. It's, this is good. Let's, let's all tiptoe by him. What is it about a lion? Did you know that a lion's roar can be heard in Africa and the plains there, five miles away? A lion's roar. 
wonder what a lion is doing when they roar. I think they're saying to the, all the animals and any human beings who are around, do you know all this is my domain? Do you know every aspect of this is mine? I think that's what a lion's doing when he roars. Um, the whole domain is what I rule. One time, uh, Marianne and I and the kids, we were uh, in, in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, we went to the Melbourne Zoo. And it's always interesting to go to other countries and to see how they run their zoos. Um, they don't have the standards that we have, by the way. A little more loose, perhaps. Um, so we went to the lion. The, the, the one place where everybody was gathering was where the lions were. And it was this, you, you could walk through and walk under this covering, and uh, there was a plexiglass thing going all the way around, and the lions were, the, the ground was almost kind of going up to about your waist, and so the plexiglass started here, so, that, so these big cats were walking by, and they were even bigger because they were above you, above you, and you're looking at, at them almost at ground level. So here's the strange thing about the Melbourne Zoo. There are about seven or eight males altogether. No females were there. All right. So maybe that mellows the guys out. I guess I don't know what that does. So, And we're all looking around. And then uh, we notice that people are gathered on this particular side of the, of the exhibit. And then we all walk around. People are walking around and gathering. We're here on the far, far side. And there, on a massive rock, is a massive lion. And I was thinking, who's the, bad, who's the bad cat among all these guys? And there he was, big, big and disinterested, sitting there, regal-looking, uninterested in what was going on around, not having to prove anything, massive lion. And I thought, wow, if that, if that cat would ever use its power it would be devastating against any other animal. Don't you expect when God uses the image of a lion here for Judah that the power would be just devastating, right? That's the anticipation. Someone's going to come, and you don't want to rouse them. You don't want to mess with them. They are coming with raw power. And John the baptizer, he expected the Messiah to come with raw power. And John's in jail, and he asks this question recorded in Matthew 11. John says, wait a minute. He's essentially saying, what am I doing in jail if the Messiah is here? Rome should be judged. All this hypocrisy should be judged. The age to come should come crashing down, and the Messiah should begin his rule. He should begin his reign. There should be raw power exhibited. So he sends a message to Jesus, and imagine this. He sends a message, uh, John's in jail, and he's, someone delivers the message, and here's the message. Are you the man? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? The message was, you know that Messiah brings raw power, right? Concrete raw power. And Jesus responds and says, go tell John, and here's the power. Here's the power. 
Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. There is power. But it comes in stages. The lion's power is coming. Stage two is the lion's power. That means it's a devastating power. It's final end-day judgment power. Stage one is a gracious, merciful, gracious power that restores. Jesus is willing to let righteousness grow. He is willing to do good. He's willing to cast out demons without destroying the demonic empire. He's willing to push back Satan without utterly defeating him and destroying him. He's even existing today and still working. Jesus is willing that there would be a stage one to his demonstrated power, and it comes now through the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, and that is the power to deliver you from darkness into light. It is the power demonstrated that Jesus is first a lamb before he is the lion of Judah. Of course he is powerful and he defeats sin, death, hell, and Satan on the cross. But it looks like weakness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and the apostles saw his power. And they knew that his power would come ultimately through the proclamation of the cross in this age. And in the age to come, he will come as a lion. You see, writer George MacDonald said that Jesus resisted every impulse to work more rapidly for a lower good. It means that he didn't just jump impulsively on something and fix it at that moment, but he's now working for the deep, deep work of righteousness. You see, what bugs us sometimes is the slow progress that we might see in our own lives, the slow progress we might see in the gospel's advance in the world. We want quick fixes. We want quick fixes. It's interesting that that's the problem of Jacob's sons, isn't it? They crash over the boundaries. They crash over the borders, and Jesus is the one who stays within the boundaries. He plays his role under his heavenly Father's will and his willing for time to continue on. The plan is moving forward, and for now, it is stage one. The Lamb is proclaimed. And of course, now there's a ruler coming, and Judah is told that there is going to be a ruler that arises out of you. Verse 10, it's, uh, it's so clear. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Essentially, you have a one-sentence summary of your whole Old Testament there. That is, God intends, in fact, you could say the whole Bible, God intends for the nations to be reached through a coming ruler. Genesis is the story of 
Jacob's sons who want their tiny worlds ordered in a certain way, often through retribution. They push over the boundaries, the commands of God, disregard God's holiness. But one will come from Judah who will bring about obedience. And how does he do it? Well, he could come and just crash in and just demand obedience. And he does that in the proclaimed word. Believing in Jesus is not a suggestion, it's a command. But he comes, he comes by foregoing, and he brings about the obedience of our hearts by foregoing his own comforts and foregoing his own desire for his own good. The message for the nations is God doesn't just call us upon, upon us to get our act together and have us bow our knees to him. It's actually he comes in Jesus and he bows his knee in serving us. This is the one who will be for all the nations, a merciful God. So essentially, Jesus is creating out of all these different peoples, he's creating one people. In 1 John 3.16, we know what distinguishes us as those who are followers of Christ. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, in the Lord's Supper today, here's what we're doing. We're proclaiming that Christ comes with power. We're proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes. We're acknowledging that we need patience. We need perseverance. Because... We are tempted to be impatient. We are tempted to push beyond the boundaries of our own lives, beyond the boundaries of God's moral will. And now we come before these elements and we acknowledge that God is telling us to be patient for those glorious days coming when Christ will reign like a lion. Already he has begun to reign and already he has begun to rule And he does it through the proclaimed word of God. Let's pray. Father, I wonder where we are looking for order and security. Father, what are we staring at? What are we longing for? What are we demanding of our day? Where are we showing impatience? Where are we out of line with the humble Lamb of God? Father, thank you that you do open the eyes of the blind and the deaf do hear. And you have proclaimed this is the day of salvation. Father, thank you for sparing us of the fierce lion of Judah. And he has come with mercy to us. And he now uses all his strength to protect us. And so, Lord, feed us. Feed us 
from the one who was willing to give his life for us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.